Well, intermission again today. So we're in Mark, obviously, chapter 6. Very familiar passage, probably. If you had read the account, the synopsis in Matthew or in John, this is the same account where Peter walks out on the water to meet Christ. And we have that whole scenario in, um, in Matthew's account. Mark doesn't record that part for us. But I think it's a great passage to look at to consider our sovereign Savior today. Um, I know we talk about that word a lot. We even named our church Sovereign Savior. Sovereign means simply Lord or Master. One who has total charge and control of all things. He is the sovereign of the universe. He's Lord of all. He's Lord of the storm. We've already looked at Mark chapter 4 previous to now where he calmed the storm. But I guess it might be right to say in this case, he calms his people. Um, even before he calms the storm, the storm is in them. Um, he frightens them. It's an interesting passage. But I think it'll be interesting for us to look and see some great characteristics of our sovereign God from today in this passage. Um, now, it'd be easy to take this kind of story um, and pull some things out like whenever the storms of life are blowing, God will help you or Jesus will come to you in your darkest moments or when Jesus sees you rowing real hard in this life, he'll come help you out. There's, I've heard and read all kinds of sermons about this passage that are similar to that. A uh, little different route I'm going to take. But um, I think this is a great passage that should encourage us. Um, and all, as always, I like for us to look at Scripture and try to figure out, you know, what is God saying about himself? Before we try to figure out, what does this have to do with me? How's this going to help me? I think it's important to first look at Scripture and say, what is, what is this teaching us about God? This is God's revelation of himself. So what do we learn about God from this? And then, obviously, there will be application that the Spirit can make to you in your personal life um, from there. And not only that, but I think it's important also to look at Scripture and try to figure out, what is God saying to the church? That might be a better approach than, what is God saying to me from this? What is God saying to the church? How is the church going to be benefited from what we are reading in the in the scripture? And so chapter 6 in Mark is full of all kinds of things. Um, going all the way back to chapter 4, uh, you know, the demoniac was healed there. We talked about that before. There's a dead girl that's been restored to life. Um, Jesus has been rejected in his own hometown. There's been the commissioning of the 12, the beheading of John the Baptist. And just previous to what I read, the feeding of the 5,000, which is also a very familiar um, passage to us. We all as kids learned that story about how Jesus took the bread, the loaves and the fishes and multiplied them and fed what the Bible says, 5,000. Many historians look, if you count women and children, it's probably more like 10 to 15,000. It's a huge thing. I mean, Jesus, this was an incredible miracle where Jesus had done a great and awesome divine miracle in front of his people but his disciples still didn't get it and we've seen that in our reading today at the end they hadn't believed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 which is amazing 
They still hadn't learned yet, which is another great reminder that until the Spirit of God awakens us to the truth, it can be all around us and smack us in the face and we'll be blind to it. Because you can't get any more in your face than living with Jesus for three years and they still didn't get it. And so the first point I want to bring out of this passage is that as our sovereign Savior, God does know the heart of man. Mark says that after this feeding occurred, Jesus said, or made his disciples get into the boat and go. John records this for us, a little more detail, that after Jesus had performed this miracle, all those men, the men that were out there in, in the grass that day being fed, when they had seen this sign that Jesus did, they said, this is truly the prophet who is coming to the world. Therefore, Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. So he departed to the mountains by himself alone, Mark says, to pray. But he sent his disciples across the sea, which is the Sea of Galilee, not the Atlantic Ocean, but the body of water called the Sea of Galilee, still big body of water. And the disciples are out there in a boat rowing without Jesus. And there is a storm. They had missed the whole point of the feeding miracle. They missed everything about Christ, apparently. Because they had not understood this miracle. And then they were about to force Jesus to be king. This crowd was. And it's possible that Jesus knew that the twelve would have joined right in with them. They would have been there too. Let's make him king. So sometimes Jesus will send his people into situations they don't quite understand to keep them from falling prey to circumstances they can't overcome. Sometimes he will send us into situations that don't make sense to keep us from falling into something that we'd never get out of. I've heard somebody refer to that as restraining grace. The things we don't see. The times that God keeps us from things we think we need and want and sometimes keeps us from things we don't even know is happening. Puts us somewhere else and we think while we're there, we should be somewhere else, but yet we're right where God has put us. And this is the case with these Disciples, they're right where they were told to be. Jesus knew the storm would be there. He's the author of storms. And he knew that was dangerous, but it was somehow less dangerous than them following the crowd. Trying to make Jesus king, some kind of earthly king at this time. Somebody said it was safer for the twelve to be away from Jesus in the middle of the sea in the dark of the night than to be on land with Jesus in the day in the middle of the crowd. You ever wonder sometimes, or do you think right now, how often our sovereign Savior has sent us alone into a tempest or into the black of night to keep us from being injured in the day? Maybe that'll help give you a different perspective on your situation, whatever it is. That God is teaching us that he really is in control of all things at all times. Maybe our desperate situations might not be so desperate after all. They actually could be God's favor in our life to keep us from being shipwrecked somewhere else. 
because like the disciples must have felt, we often feel like we've been sent away alone, but obviously we're never alone. Notice the second point. Our Savior never loses sight of his own people. We're never away from his eyes. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. Yet he saw them straining at rowing, and it was the fourth watch of the night. So there they are out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. He was on land about three or three to six o'clock in the morning, and they had went out three to four miles. They weren't just rowing right down the edge of the bank. They were three or four miles out, and the Bible says he saw them. He sent them out, yet he stayed. They were out there three or four miles, but they weren't alone. Reminded of what the Bible says, that God is the God who sees even every sparrow fall to the ground. Nothing escapes his watchful eye, nothing. I think it was Sproul that said something like, there's not one rogue molecule in all the universe. Besides that, the disciples, again, much like in chapter 4, they were out in the sea in obedience. They did what Jesus told them to do. Sometimes that may be the case. We pray every week for the persecuted church. The majority of these people that we pray for all over the world, they're in the situation they are in, not because of necessarily their own sin, but because of their obedience. We have a tendency to think, and we've been taught a lot of bad theology that says if you do bad, then bad things happen to you. If you do good, good things happen. Bad things get you uh, broke and poor and down and out. Good things, you know, sort of that saying, God helps those who help themselves. But it's not that's not biblical. But you can be obedient and still bad things can happen to you. But that doesn't mean... A, that you're outside the will of God, or B, that God's not going to redeem that for His glory and even for your good. Besides that, it's a good time to be reminded that even in our obedience to God's law, that's not an opportunity for us to be boasting about ourselves. I wrote those words down. We sang a while ago because it hit me as we were singing them. Help me to live so all might see the strength to follow your commands can never come from me. Even when we're obedient, that's still glory to God, not to us. Not, man, look how good I am at being a Christian. And it ought to blow us away also when we find ourselves in any kind of obedience. It ought to make us stop and go, wow, that's got to be God. Because I would never obey any of this were it not for the Spirit of God. All I would do is sin. But then we come to this next point. Not only does he never lose sight of his people, but we're told here, and this is one of those very unique times in Scripture, we find Jesus praying. He prays for his people. At his baptism, at his choosing the twelve, at the transfiguration and just prior to his crucifixion, and right here, the only times in Scripture we see Jesus praying. 
Though we do know that he often withdrew himself into the wilderness to pray, it seemed to be these very pivotal pivotal times of a sort of faith crises when we see him actually or hear that he is praying. We should be greatly encouraged again by our God's revelation to us right here. And again, whenever as the church we're alone or we seem to be on a little island or we seem to be dealing with things, straining, if you will, as they were at rowing, wondering if we'll make it. We are told that we have a Savior who ever lives to intercede for us. Because he intercedes for us, we will live for all eternity with him. And what he's praying for right here, we're not told specifically, but he is praying. Possibly for their faith. I don't know, but most likely their hard hearts because soon they are softened. Mark records they were greatly amazed beyond measure and marveled at what Jesus was, or what we read that he did here. And Matthew even records this for us, and I think this is important. At the time they realized who he was walking on the water, and after Peter had walked and came back and they recognized who Jesus was, they worshipped him, Matthew said, and said these words, Truly you are the Son of God. You might remember in chapter 4 they were left with questions. Who is this that even the winds and the sea obey? And now they're professing. Truly, you are the Son of God. And I believe this is what Peter was talking about at the end of chapter 6 in John, where this event is reported. At the very end, when Jesus is asking his disciples, he says, all have went away. Why are you still here? Are you going to leave me too? And Peter confessed the same confession, you may recall. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This time they didn't forget it so fast. Maybe the difference was Jesus prayed and then he came to them. He prayed for them and he came. He interceded then he came to them. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He has come for his people. His name shall be Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. So he didn't just pray, he came to them. And not only did he come to them, he spoke to them. This is the miracle of God in the flesh. He walked on the sea. Now, if you're familiar with biblical criticism, you know that throughout church history, there have been many who've tried to say this, you know, this wasn't really a miracle. There are parts of the Sea of Galilee that are shallow. Jesus was probably at one of those points just walked across a little grass bed. and they, There's all kinds of writings out there to dismiss what the Bible says that Jesus came walking to them on the sea. But I have to conclude if he made the seas and spoke them into existence, he makes the storms, he calms the seas, he calms the storms, then he can walk on them too. I'm not, I don't have to be too convinced of those kind of miracles. He can die and be raised from the dead and send back to heaven. Uh, he can walk on the water. And Mark makes this interesting 
comment. He says, he came walking to them on the sea. It was dark. They were straining in torment. They were troubled and they thought he was a ghost. Now this one little phrase here is very important. There's been a lot of speculation, a lot of um, commentary written about this phrase. What does it mean? He came to them walking on the sea. Not that part, but this, this verse. He would have passed them by. What does that mean? He would have passed them by. There have been basically three suggestions throughout church history of what this passage means. I'm going to give you those real quickly. Because I think this is a very important part of what's happening here in this passage. One, many have suggested he would have passed them by simply as a misinterpretation. This is always the number one go-to. Oh, well, somebody just interpreted this wrong. It should have read, he intended to pass their way. Or he meant to. In fact, I think I was reading the ESV and they sort of take taken this rendering because they make it look like he, he meant to pass them by, but then they they yelled out because they thought they'd seen a ghost and then he spoke to them. So a lot of people think it's just maybe a, a poor interpretation of what it, of this, or poor rendering of he would have passed them by. It should have just been translated he intended to pass their way or he meant to pass that way or by them, which doesn't really make as much sense as he would have passed them by, and I'll say why in a minute. Other, number two perspective is that this is just what the disciples saw. They thought if we wouldn't have yelled, he would have just kept going. He would have passed us by, but we we were scared and yelled. We saw a ghost, and so he stopped. There's not a lot written about that, but it is a perspective. I don't know. I don't know why that would. That doesn't make much sense to me. But there's this third idea. And the reason I had Exodus chapter 33 read to you, because I don't know if you recall seeing this very phrase in that passage at least twice about God would pass by. I will pass by. And so I think that, as usual, the New Testament writers were intentional in using this phrase. Several times in the Old Testament, not just in Exodus 33, but also in Elijah and 1 Kings, there's this idea that God would pass by his people. And so I believe that possibly Mark's writing this and thinking about this revelation that suddenly they understood this is the son of God. This is God in the flesh. That his mind was taken back to these Old Testament dealings with God and his people. As the glory of God passed by Moses, you remember God said, you cannot see me or look at me for no man shall see me and live. But I think this was what Peter had going on maybe in his mind as he walked on the water. He saw Jesus walking on the water. Man, the glory of God would have passed us by, but this is God in the flesh. This is the incarnation. This is no longer do we have to be 
held or hidden in a cleft. But we can behold him. He is the only begotten, full of glory and truth. He is God in the flesh. He would have passed us by. And that would have been enough. But he revealed himself to us. We heard his voice. This is the God-man. Emmanuel. So I believe this is why that profession was made at the end of this. All of a sudden, this just somehow brought all this together to them. Man, like Moses or like Elijah, God would have passed us by, but he didn't. He spoke to us. We beheld his glory. He came walking to them on the water. That's amazing. And they were amazed by that because he is man. That was not lost on them. Because we needed a man to intercede for us. We needed a man to keep the law for us. We need a man to become our sin for us. But we also needed one who is divine, who could be the ultimate high priest, one who transcends all earthly qualifications, one who could reach beyond the grasp of mortality and attain that for which, that which we could never have attained for ourselves, eternal life. That we could be in the presence of God and not be destroyed over us. He gave us his righteousness. So though they were astounded that this man was walking on the water, they were more astounded that this man was the son of God. He was God in the flesh. And so too he comes to us veiled in flesh, but robed in 100% divinity. 100% God, 100% man. Because that's the only way we can be redeemed. So if your faith is in any thing or any action or any obedience or any thing under the sun besides Jesus Christ and his righteousness, then you really have no hope. Because even your good deeds, remember, point to his goodness, not your own goodness. And not only did he come to them, but above just having God come to us, more than anything, we needed him to speak to us. And he does. He speaks to us through his word. He has revealed his salvation to us through his word. Why all the miracles in the world will never suffice to bring one sinner to salvation. That's why these disciples could see all this stuff happening and not be convinced until God opened their eyes to see that he is God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Jesus spoke to his disciples and said, Be of good cheer, it is I. In other words, this is the same I am. And that was the courage that Peter needed to get out of the boat. It was the word spoken that caused them to worship him and acknowledge him as the son of God. So we need God to speak, not in some kind of new revelation that nobody's ever heard before. We just need him to speak the way he did to them, the same way that God of the Old Testament spoke. I am. And he does that for us through his word. Jesus said later in John 6, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one comes to me unless he is granted. It is granted to him by my father. 
And he said before that, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And how does he draw people to himself? By the word of God. By just what we're doing here today. By hearing the word. Seeing the word. Preaching the word. God continues to open people's eyes and bring them to himself. To where we're able to look and say, this is truly the son of God. This is my only hope. Their hard hearts were changed when Jesus not only came to them, but when they when he spoke to them. That's why we believe in the divine, specific, special revelation or call of God. When he calls his people, they hear him. Because they recognize he's God. How could you not come to him when you recognize he is God? I really believe that. For people to reject him and reject him and not to believe in him, they don't believe he's God. They can't believe he's God and turn away from him. So I pray that God speaks to you right in the midst of your torment, in the midst of your rowing, in the midst of your darkness. Bring you at ease like he did for these disciples. That you can confess he is Lord. The glory of God the Father. I'm reminded of what our confession says in the very first section, chapter 1, about the scriptures. They are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and his will that is necessary for salvation. Therefore, the Lord was pleased at different times and in various ways to reveal himself and declare his will to the church, to preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan in the world. The Lord put this revelation completely in writing. Therefore, the Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing his will to his people have now ceased. This way of revealing himself has not ceased. If you're hearing this today, confess that Jesus is Lord so that you can be saved. Did you read our, pay attention when we read our catechism together? Who will be saved? Those who repent of sin and believe. What does it mean to repent? To turn from your sin, to hate it and forsake it. And to believe in Jesus means to trust that he's the only hope you have for salvation. Not that, I, well, I'm going to trust Jesus plus coming to church and being good and stopping this and stopping that. No, you turn to God in hopes that he will give you repentance to stop all the stuff you need to stop. But what you don't want to stop and what he will never allow to stop is your faith and belief in Christ because he's the only way to salvation. And glory to God for that because if we could stop, we'd stop believing in it. We stop everything else and we keep doing everything else. But he will not allow our faith to subside. If your faith is alive and continuing, then give God, give God glory for that because it's none of your own doings. Your parents didn't pass that along to you. Even your church, if you grew up in a good church, and many of us did, and you heard the gospel, all that was part of God's plan, but it was God who gave you faith and God who sustained you. We ought to glorify him for that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that your people have heard it and they will respond in faith, especially maybe a few who have never 
been given saving faith and they just now recognize that this Jesus has to be the Christ. He has to be the Savior of the world. For him to do the things he did and speak the things he spoke, for him to take my place, to be punished for my sin, be dead and buried and raised again, and to send back to heaven, then he has to be the only true God. And he's the one that's going to come back and get me. So, Lord, help help us to put all our faith and trust in him. And we'll praise you for that. In the name of Christ, we do pray. Amen.